um, we're picking up in Judges, and I just want to give us a little refresher of where we are in the Bible, so to speak, kind of in the big picture to be able to catch up with where we are. Early on in the story of God's people, after you know Adam and Eve fall and sin comes and corrupts all of humanity, all of creation, God is beginning His work to restore creation and humanity. And it begins with a man named Abraham. A man that he chooses out of obscurity and he says, come follow me, I am going to bless you with as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and I'm going to give them a land. Your people will bless the nations. Your seed, your descendants will be the, one, the ones who, who bless those around them and show them what their creator is like. Fast forward a few hundred years and God's people, the descendants of Abraham, are enslaved in Egypt. And God, he intervenes and when he hears the cries of his people and he sends Moses to liberate them from the oppression of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and he, he establishes his covenant, his law with them. And he says, if you want to live in the land that I've promised you, this is how you must live, how you must follow me, how you must worship no other gods but me, how you must not intermarry with those who worship other gods because they're going to pull you away. Don't repeat the detestable practices of those who live in the land I'm going to give to you. Then when it's time for them to enter this promised land, the people are fearful. They say there's giants there, their cities have walls, there's no way we can take it, even with God on our side. And so, they're barred from entering the promised land, and that generation is doomed to, to, to wander in the desert and die off, and the next generation is given the opportunity to come into this promised land. They're led by a man named Joshua who leads them in a military conquest to drive out the Canaanites of the promised land, which is only partially successful. They're not fully obedient in how they do it. They're not uh, living and fighting like they have the God of the universe on their side. And in their fear, they, they don't complete the job. And God says, because you haven't driven all of the Canaanites from the land, they will be a constant temptation for you. There'll be a constant thorn in your flesh. Their gods will be a temptation and a snare to you. And this is what we see throughout the book of Judges, is God's people, rather than being a light to the nation, nations around them, like God told Abraham he wanted them to be, they were people who were tempted and made more into Canaanites than they often showed the people around them what their creator was like. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapters 6, 7, and 8 in the book of Judges, and this highlights the story of the judge named Gideon. Now, growing up, I didn't know a whole lot about Gideon. What I knew mostly about Gideon was that my grandfather was part of an organization that gave out Bibles in hotels that was called the Gideons, and that's, that's what I knew about them. I don't know what this organization with Bibles has to do with... Um, you know, uh, an ancient Israelite warlord. But uh, anyway, it's great that there's Bibles in hotel rooms. But you might know Gideon from, from, there's a couple like famous stories in his life. One that is often quoted by people or sometimes shapes their practices is Gideon's laying out of a fleece to test God. And we'll get to that a little bit later. And also the story in, in Gideon's life where he 
uh, who's leading an army to drive out the Midianites. But God says, no, I only want you to use 300 men. And 300 men who drink funny from the water. Like, that's how he pairs them down to show the power of God even over the, the thousands of the Midianites that they were fighting against. Now, this morning, I realized looking at three chapters of Scripture is a lot. So we're going to boil it down into two major themes that we're going to look at from the life of Gideon, kind of my two points if you're following along that way. If you want to dive in more, I'd encourage you to read 6, 7, and 8. Grab a study guide if you don't have one. Work through some of those questions. We're going to go a bit more in-depth uh, tonight and tomorrow in our, our studies, uh, our study groups for, uh, for these chapters. But this morning, we're going to look at two main themes. And the first one is this, is God's grace and Gideon's fear. Now, what we see in the life of Gideon isn't this fantastic leader for us to emulate someone to name organizations after. He isn't actually a a phenomenal guy. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us through the book of Judges, because that is a repeated theme over and over. We see Gideon as a man who, based on his circumstances and and where he finds himself, is a man who is full of fear and cynicism. In fact, when when, uh, the Israelites are crying out to God because of the Midianites who are oppressing them, God shows up to Gideon. And and he, he shows up to tell him that you're going to be kind of the leader, the judge that I'm going to use to liberate my people. And where he finds Gideon is uh, threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, if you remember back to a few weeks ago in Advent, we were talking about the story of Ruth. She meets Boaz at the threshing floor. That's where you thresh wheat. And that's usually out in the field somewhere, somewhere that where it's easily visible, where there's uh, lots of wind, so that you could separate the, the, the wheat from the chaff where you can take the, the kernels of wheat off and the wind can take the, the, the chaff off uh, with it. But because of their fear of the Midianites who are oppressing them, Gideon isn't out in the open. He's hiding down in the wine press, where you're stepping on grapes to, to produce your wine. And this, this just sets the, the scene of, of what Gideon and those around him were like. They were living in this place of fear of the Midianites. And we see these, these, these themes play out in Gideon's life of how his fear and cynicism shape his actions. First, Gideon is threshing wheat at a wine press. But Gideon, out of his fear and cynicism, he questions God's revelation to him. As, as God shows up in Gideon's life, he says, you're going to be the leader. You're going to liberate, I'm going to use you to liberate my people He says, like, I've been with you through all this. And Gideon's response is more out of his cynicism and fear than the fact that the angel of the Lord is standing in front of him and saying, I'm going to use you and I'm going to do something great. Like, the angel of the Lord shows up to him in a way that he doesn't for any of the other judges in this book. But Gideon, out of his his cynicism and fear, he says, well, if you're with us, where have you been over these last however many years? Why aren't you doing the things like you did in Egypt with our ancestors? Why are we oppressed by the Midianites? And even when the angel of the Lord tells him, like, I'm going to use you to liberate my people, 
we see in Judges uh, 6, 14 and 15, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength, uh, in the strength you have to save Israel out of the Midianites' hands. Am I not sending you? And Gideon's response is, Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we can kind of live in this mentality of Gideon as well. Where, where it might be very clear what God is calling us to, but we will use every example that we can find in order to convince ourselves that, that we don't need to be doing it. We can have this cynicism of, well, I've been hurt before. And so I, I can't step out in faith in what God is calling me to do. Or I, I've tried and God has felt like he's absent, and so I'm not going to dive deep into my faith. Or we can, we can live in that fear of not knowing what's ahead and, and of not saying, well, I'm not going to be in control of what's before me. God is going to call you and I to do things that don't sit well with us, to do things that make us step out of our comfort zone, where we're going to have to be faithful and courageous despite our inner sense of cynicism and fear. To trust that if God is calling us to have a hard conversation with someone. To trust that if God is, is inviting us to seek reconciliation that reflects the gospel. That if God is calling us to, to reach out and to, to share Jesus with an individual or to bring our life in line with his teachings, he is going to help us through it. That we don't need to let our cynicism and our fear reign. We also need to trust that God can use even us. Even us. And sometimes I feel a little bit of like the Gideon syndrome of, well, I'm just like a young guy from a small town, from a small province in a passive country. Like, what can God do here? Like, can God do here what I've heard him do in other places? Like when I read of the history of revivals and the work that God has done, like why is my immediate reaction of like, yeah, but, but not here. Like we're in a small rural town in PEI. Like what's God going to do? I think we need to fight against the Gideon mentality and to respond with God is clearly leading us into something. We can't let it persist in our lives to the point where our fear and cynicism is shaping us and our actions and our thinking more than the character of Christ is. So how do we fight against our own cynicism? How do we fight against our, our fear to be able to trust in Christ rather than our fear? Quick and easy answer is to worship. Is to worship. It's to set our eyes not on the things of this world, but on the one who is redeeming us. To be reminded of the character and the reputation of the God who is calling us. And, and what I love is we see this contrast of Gideon's character with God's character in this. So, Gideon responds out of fear and cynicism, but we see God out of his grace and patience, he chooses to meet Gideon where he's at. 
We see him, yeah, he comes to a scared man in the wine press. We see that God accommodates Gideon's testing. So, throughout God's time talking with Gideon, Gideon's like, well, show me a sign to prove that this is real. And then later on, there's the famous story of like, okay, God, yeah, things are going great, but let me like lay out this, this wool fleece, and in the morning, if it's wet and the ground is dry, I'll know that this is what you want me to do. And then God does that. God graciously accommodates Gideon's testing despite showing up to him. Like, and then after God does that, Gideon's like, all right, but tomorrow morning, I'm going to lay it out, and if the fleece is dry but the ground is wet, I know that that's what you want me to do. Listen, how many of us have been like, all right, God, if three blue cars drive past, I know, I know that's what you want me to do. It's some version of that, right? And, and that displays our reluctance despite what we know God is calling us to do. Like, we know better. But, but we're just looking for an excuse to, to stay in our comfort or to stay in our fear. What we see about God's character is he's patient with Gideon in the midst of that. He even accommodates him. This isn't a story for us to be like, if we want to know what God wants us to do, ask for three cars to drive by of the same color and brand. Like, what this is showing us is Gideon's fear and lack of faith, despite knowing clearly what God wants him to do. And yet God graciously meets him where he's at, empowers him by his spirit, uses Gideon despite his doubt. I'll share with you one of my fleece stories. Uh, some of you may have heard this if you've been around for a while. Back in high school, I was in a, um, in a romantic relationship where, let me say, we weren't getting together to study the book of John. You know, like we're, it, we were not pointing each other towards Christ. Uh, and as someone who, like at the time, felt a call to ministry, knew that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life, like, this was obviously a detour. And I, I remember getting together, uh, like I was, it was the summer before Bible college, I was traveling with a team from the college of like prospective students, and I knew that this relationship was going to have to end. Like, I knew that it wasn't healthy and good for my relationship with God. I knew that it was not God's will for me. But it was like one of those things of like, yeah, I know, but like, it'd be great if three blue cars drove by. I didn't say that, but. And I remember traveling with his team. We were, we were on a tour bus. And God was really convicting my heart about this relationship and how I wasn't pursuing him in it. And I remember kind of sitting there and praying with God of, okay, God, but if, if this is what you want, let someone come and talk to me about it. That was my fleece. I already knew it was sinful for me to not have already acted upon what I knew God was calling me to do. But God, in his grace, and patience, and mercy 
had a guy who has now become one of my best friends come and sit down on the, on the chair next to me on the bus. I had my Bible, and what I was using as a bookmark was like one of our pictures from prom of me and, and this girl. He sits down next to me. He sees that picture, opens my Bible, taps on it, and says, so what are you going to do about her? And I'm like, all right. All right, God. Anyway, needless to say, that's not Haley. We're going to move on to our second point. The second half of Gideon's story we see as a word of warning. Where if in the first half we see Gideon's fear and cynicism met with God's grace and patience, the second half is is a bit more severe and should be a stark word to us. God uses Gideon in a mighty way to defeat the Midianites. He pairs down his army to 300 guys who drink water funny and they go and they drive the Midianites out. They capture the kings of the Midianites and they kill them. And now it's like, now what? Gideon's done his thing. He's been successful. God's empowered him by his spirit to unite the tribes to be able to do this work. And now what? And what we see is this shift in Gideon. And I think what is important for us to see here and is also true in our lives is that Gideon becomes convinced that he's made it. And so from here on out, he doesn't really need God. And I think for you and I, when we've convinced ourselves that we've made it, we've set ourselves up for failure. When we say, okay, I've arrived. I've gotten this far. And, and we, we probably deep in ourselves know it's God who's got us there, but we convince ourselves of, look at all the great things that I've done to get me to this place. And once we're there, we're kind of at this crossroads. A crossroads to say, now that that task is completed, now that that addiction is overcome, now that I've overcome that hurdle or challenge in my life, I can just coast from here on out, or I can lean in deeper into God. We see it as pastors in people's spiritual lives. Particularly for some reason around the like empty nester stage. There tends to be this like, all right, we've gotten the kids out and gone. And now what? We see it in people's health, doctors. Where, okay, we've overcome this health hurdle. Or we've gotten through this surgery. Or, or we've gotten the, the weight down to the point where we can make progress this way. And now, I can just coast and do what I want. Counselors see it in marriages. Of we've, we've made it to this anniversary. Or we've gotten through this conflict. Or we've, we've taken care of the financial things that we're, we're putting stress on our marriage. And now we'll coast. We have this tendency in our lives. We... we where we can neglect God after he's done some of the greatest work in us. I have this kind of almost like uh, visual representation of this, of like we have the moment of where we've come to faith, and then God's doing this work in us where he brings out some of, or brings us out of some of our, our mess, so to speak. And at that point, we're, we're at a crossroads. If we can coast, 
where we're convinced that we're good from here. That I don't need God in order to continue my life well because I've gotten that thing taken care of. Or we can grow in deeper dependence and reliance on God. Gideon was convinced he was good. And where we see his life go is in some dark places. Places where he goes to the villages of those who wouldn't help out with a military campaign and he tortures the elders of the city. Or he goes to another place and he rips down a tower, killing people. Out of revenge and vengeance. Even worse, in Judges uh, 8.27, we read that Gideon made gold earrings into an ephod, which was either like a priestly garment or, or a statue, which he placed in Ophrah, which is where he's from, his town, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. This man that had once been used by God to liberate God's people brought them right back into bondage by turning so far from God that he created his own idols and statues for people to worship. Gideon's name means the one who chops down, meaning he was called to chop down the the idols and the altars of the foreign gods, but instead what he does at the end of his life is he builds up an altar and an idol that leads God's people astray. We're in constant need of Christ's renewing work in our lives. We don't arrive to a point where we say, I'm able to coast from here on out. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to constantly recenter our hearts and our minds on our Savior. We need to constantly be turning ourselves towards Christ because just like we were talking about earlier, we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. So this morning, we're going to be closing our service in celebrating communion, which is this re-centering act that we do, where we turn our gaze to the cross every time. Because in taking this bread, which represents Christ's body, which was broken for us, and drinking the cup of this, this wine that represents Christ's blood, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, we are invited again into the life of the resurrected Messiah. To remember that Jesus did something 2,000 years ago on that cross that we desperately need and could never do for ourselves. And, And even when we think we've achieved everything, we're still in need of the cross. Every day. And so I want to invite you to turn your attention to the bread and the cups on the table in front of you. And if you're sitting with someone... I'd encourage you to take the bread and have someone break it and for everyone to be able to break off a piece of that bread. I invite you to eat this with us together remembering Christ's body which was given for you. Let's eat this in remembrance of him. And just like Jesus took the cup of wine after the meal, 
We're going to take this cup and remember Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. Establishing a new covenant between God and humanity. That through the Messiah, all people can experience the life that Christ offers. Let's drink in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, in the midst of our fear and our cynicism and our hearts that are prone to wander, you remain faithful. You remain near. And I pray, Christ, that today we would be recentered in you, that we would turn our eyes from the world and towards you. Would you be the one who defines who we are, who shapes our lives more than anything else? Because we know that the fullness of life comes in and through you. Jesus, I thank you that our sins are forgiven, that we're made clean, that you make us new, and that you are committed to the long haul. You're committed to the the lifelong work of shaping us by your Spirit as we partner with you in being part of the new creation that you are bringing about through your Son. May we live in the joy of that together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to 